If you don't know yourself, you are not going to be very successful, in my opinion, as a manager and a leader, because you have to understand your work style preferences, your habits, your blind spots. You know, we all have tendencies. I know I have a tendency when I'm under stress. I have certain behaviors and I now can recognize them. But think how powerful it would be if you could say to people, hey, when I'm under stress, I'm going to do this thing. And what I would love for you to do is call me on it. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you enjoy the pod, the best way to show your support is by leaving a review. Thanks. I just recorded my audiobook. You did? Jubin, and they were like, put your mouth up. No way. Yeah. It took 35 hours or 40. To record the audiobook? Yeah. Are you kidding? I'm not kidding at all. That's a long time. And I was exhausted. I could only do two hours a day because my voice would get shot. Wait, I have to show you. Okay, yeah. so the book comes out when? March 7th. March 7th. And yeah. you can pre-order it now? You can. Okay, okay. So I got the early copy. You got the PDF. And check this out. So it's And were a, you like, is this book so it is, <laughs> a little it long? So it is unnamed because you were so serious about not sharing it. And so it is unnamed this like it's been printed out and bindered okay there's no cover your secret i even had your like title page ah, removed you look like, like a government official you're like because i thought you were gonna binder. kick my ass if something got out and so i didn't want that blood on my hands oh. so anyway i've been reading through it it's, it's long right <laughs> it doesn't read long though oh, that's i think there's one chapter that reads a little long, does that make but, sense well it's not meant to be read cover to cover right it's a reference book more. So Yeah, but like I, how do you what do you mean? But Patrick was like, I think it's long. <laughs> That's what he said? Yeah. Why? He said it was good. He said it's what I was picturing, but it's a little long. I don't know, because it gets into some, you know, tactical detail. But like, how is it meant to be consumed? It is meant to be, again, more like a reference book. So I don't think anyone's gonna like when I read the hard thing about hard things. I don't know if I'm allowed to mention rival you venture can, capital you can, firm. You can. I read it cover to cover. Yeah. I was on a plane and I was like, oh my gosh, I love this book. And my book is not that. My book is more about what are you wrestling with as a manager? You want some advice about something? Look in the table of contents, which is a really, if you look at the table of contents, it's like super specific. You know, it's not like chapter one is this. It's really subsections of the book. It's like yeah. look in almost like a textbook. Go and look and go find the thing you're wrestling with and you can read the section on it. Yeah. So that's the way it's meant to be consumed. I think some people will read a lot of it at once. The beginning goes pretty quickly, I think. But if the thing that I'm describing, whether it's a company building challenge or a management challenge or opportunity, uh, doesn't apply to you, reading that is not going to be that exciting because it's very tactical. People are thinking, oh, I'm going to have all these anecdotes about your life and your career. I'm like, yeah, you get a little bit. Yeah. But it's more like you true. get a bunch of bullets of like, how do you do the thing? I told one of my partners that we were going to sit down and that I've just read this thing cover yeah. to cover. And he was like, oh my God, give it to me. And I said, I can't. Then he tells one of our founders that I have a copy of this thing. Have you ever seen Devil Wears Prada? It's my yes, favorite movie. Yes, of course. Okay. It's your so, favorite movie? Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. very embarrassing. So, very embarrassing. So do you remember the scene where Meryl Streep tells Anne Hathaway that 
she needs the new book, the Harry Potter book yeah. or whatever yes. it is. So she's running around New York City getting it bound for the kids before they get on the train. That's what I feel like. Yeah, that's so <laughs> I have had to be a little protective. And part of this is, you know, for the Stripe Press team where this is part of, they need revenue. We got to support that part of the business. That's right. But the venture capital community and some founder community have been lobbying to get copies of the book. What's the equivalent of book Napster? <laughs> <laughs> a bootlegged copy of the book is in high demand, Jubin. It's, uh, it's and a so good place I to have be. to be careful. It's a good I, place I to be. I don't want to be the person who creates, by the way, some insider club. Right. Right? Where right. it's like, oh, did you get a copy of the book? Right, like, right. No, no, no. It's for everyone. Right. And that's actually the whole point of the book. I'm the only insider. And so, that's right. Well, that's you right. know, that's you got it for a special reason. I appreciate you doing that. It's, this is more of a transactional situation. That's not right. It behooves a, you. I'm not creating special <laughs> status here. That's I know right. you want to be a VIP. I want but, it so bad. I appreciate you doing this. I really do. Was it harder to build Stripe or to write the book? <laughs> I think my husband might say to write the book. Differently hard. Differently hard. You know, there's the first few years at Stripe, I've said to a few people, I would not do that again. It was so intense and so much. We were really underbuilt when I joined for where our business was. And I couldn't stop thinking about it 24 hours a day. You know, even if I was at home and with my kids and trying to be a normal human, I was just consumed by it. So that was probably harder because the book never consumed me. The book was more like having a giant guilt trip where I knew I should be working on the book right now. Right. But you would just and do I other would things. not hit all my deadlines. Right. <laughs> I had other things going on, you know, and then I would be up against a deadline and it would be painful because you know that when you have to personally produce, like I'm more of a leader person, a manager, right. I have a team and you they have help leverage. me. Yeah, I have leverage. And the book is not, I mean, there were people who helped me. I want to be very clear. And as you see in the book, we actually have a lot of authors in there, people at you Stripe, do. people who were at Stripe. I interviewed a lot of leaders and, and put quotes in there and stuff. But point is, it's not the same. It's not a collaborative team effort. It is very individual. And I think my individual skills were a little rusty. I like it. It's good. You got to tune up. The, you got to sharpen the sword a little yeah. bit. Yeah. When you first joined Stripe, that was what, like 100, 150 people? Yeah, it was about, I think, 162. And why do you say you wouldn't do that again? Isn't kind of the point, tell me if I'm wrong, but wasn't part of what you knew you were signing up for was that endless consumption of every calorie that you possibly could give? Like, didn't you know that? Or is it not what you expected? I felt really well informed. So how do I say it? So, so look, I joined Google early in my life and career. I worked on really like scrappy political campaigns. I am not a person who's afraid to build or have few resources. That wasn't the thing. And then I joined Google when it was about 1,800 people pre-IPO. And actually, that was the biggest place I'd ever worked. Like So for me, Google felt very luxurious at 1,800 people. But we worked really hard. Like my first few years there, I mean, Google was doubling in size and revenue every year, I feel like for the first four years. Mm -hmm. And gosh, the amount of interviewing and hiring I was doing on top of my job was just mind boggling. But there was a lot of infrastructure already in place, right? There were recruiters at Google and there was- 1,500 people is a decent size. Yeah, it's a decent size. And you know, I think more about internal systems that support how you run a thing, but whether that's a software or a process or what have you. Google liked to build all of its own stuff, but we had certain internal software whether it was helping the support team or the sales team or that was actually really mature and interesting for the stage of the company. 
And then we had some that I was like, is this for real? How are we running this business on this piece of crap? Right. Anyway, but it was very inconsistent, I would Uh say. But I mean, Google invested a lot on building those systems really quickly and investing in like an ATS, an applicant tracking system, what have you. So anyway, I felt informed. I had certainly spent a lot of time with John and Patrick. I knew where Stripe was. I would looked at investor decks. I'd met with investors. I met with every a lot of people at the company. But you come in. Well, here, one of the first things I did when I came in is try to figure out, OK, what size should we be? And I'm going to use size talking about headcount for a minute. And I think that sometimes that's used as some marker of success. And I think you're that's just a, using it as a proxy I'm just for the using maturity it of the as, business. as a benchmark and a proxy. Yep. I don't think hiring is the win, right? The win is what you're doing for customers, what you're doing against your mission and ultimately your revenue and you know profitability. But I'm going to use headcount and also because I can't talk about some of the other data. But I would say that it was important for me to assess were we actually matched up against where we should be with respect to the size of the sales team, for example, which, by the way, was two people when I joined. <laughs> so we had 160 two, people we had and two, two inside sales uh-huh. reps who were pretty new, one account manager, uh-huh. one marketer and a couple recruiters. Anyway, we didn't really have a finance team. We had someone who did a lot of the accounting. So I grabbed this smart guy who kind of like did analytics and finance stuff And I said, you're going to help me run an analytical process where we're going to do a tops down and a bottom up assessment of like, how big should we be based on a lot of different vectors, like our revenue growth, our number of new customers, our support demand, our sales inbound, our engineering, sort of our, our ambition in our roadmap, what our goals would require. We did this up and down and it was fun because he was smart. He'd never done anything like it. And I'll admit my secret weapon is that my husband at one time when he worked at Google did work like that. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, in the background, right, right. <laughs> actually had my home. husband <laughs> meet the guy directly. I was like, Go can away. you coach him on what I'm trying <laughs> to build? Because it was something we had never done before. So I joined, it was like 162. By the end of that first, that was the end of 2014. By the end of that year, I want to say we were at 187. Like we didn't grow that much by between October and December of that year. But point is, we had this all hands meeting where we were going to present the findings because we were working on the plan, the plan for 2015. And I knew I was too new. And I said to John and Patrick, I was like, I can't the get co-founders. up. co-founders. Yeah. The co-sorry, Collison's co-founders yep. of Stripe. I said, I can't be the one who gets up at the all hands and sort of starts to talk about the priorities and the goals. And frankly, this is going to be a big number we're going to put out. Our analysis essentially said, okay, this company that's like 180 people should be 500 mm. right now. And so when I say underbuilt, I mean, we were not scaling at the speed that we needed to be scaling Mm. to support the business that we were building. Yeah. And I think down to actually some good DNA in Stripe was to be quite conservative, very careful with spending and the P&L, and also kind of paranoid. You don't want to take success for granted. And I actually think not really fully accepting that product market fit was there. There was a little bit of like, well, are we sure we got it? How obvious was it, though, in hindsight? Oh, extremely obvious. <laughs> For then, it was. I think it hadn't been obvious. Like the business was ripping at that point. It was ripping, but it hadn't been, right? It took, I mean, this is was what I think people forget. Was it double digits in revenue yet? It was, oh, yes. It was starting to rip, but I will say that they went through like three years of finding it. Yeah. And coming out of that period where they were, say, 30 to 40, had like that was the size of the company yeah. for a while. Yeah. 
I think when that happens, and that does happen, and people don't talk about that, like it takes you time to get the traction. You are then more conservative and paranoid. Because when you get it, you're like, was it real? Because we were like three years, not in the wilderness, but I remember during- It's It's like scars. It's scars, but it's also caution. It's- Everyone's like, you'll know it when you see it. And certainly when I looked at the numbers, when I was joining, yeah. I saw it. Yeah. I mean, it was very clear in the data, but I think it was more a mentality. Yeah. A mentality where it's like, it's okay. It's safe to invest now. But the point is, it's very hard then to build because picture you're trying to build a building and you're like starting well below the ground level. Right. Right. Your foundational building right. is a lot more than if you had started at the right time. Yeah. That makes sense to me. That's and just so, tiring. And so- Rewinding back to those first couple of years, you're playing catch up to yes, build the that's infra- what I'm saying. to build exactly. the infrastructure for the company for the company, and the company is only growing faster and faster. Oh, and so you're yes. already and we're launching in new markets, and like, you're launching in new markets, and then preeminently you're launching other products, mm-hmm. and so you're already playing catch up. But the business is growing. It's hard enough to keep up with an exponentially growing business that doesn't require any catch up. But when you say, hey, I'm not sure I'll do the first couple of years, the first couple of years were crawling out of the hole exactly. that was no infrastructure, yes. then keeping up with the growth that was already yes. happening concurrently. Correct. When you were getting recruited, I heard that the recruitment process was unique. <laughs> and I say unique from the Stripe side. Mm. Do you remember? Oh, of course I do. When you're especially hiring your first sort of executives, right, for a company. I now look back on it and I realize what trust was being put. You know, I think that was a very big decision for Patrick and John because COO as a role has a certain statement. Even if the role is different in your company, it's associated externally with a certain amount of responsibility and partnership with founders. And frankly, any new leader imprints on your culture. And our culture was information and our company was information. And so now I look back, I'm like, that was a huge decision for them. Of course, it took a long time. But at the time, I didn't mind. We actually really, it was a long process. And I think it was a long process for a lot of good reasons. But on my side, I had just decided to kind of recommit to Google. Like I was like, not sure I should stay at Google I wasn't sure I was learning at the same you rate. You had an incredible run there. I had a great run. I owe a lot. I mean, I learned so much. I got so many amazing opportunities. But toward the end, you know, was I learning? Was I really meeting my own ambition in terms of what I was doing with my time? And I had just committed to the self-driving cars project. To run that team. To run it. I mean, but more as the COO, actually, like more as the business leader. I did have product and there was a technical, in effect, kind of a founder who's Chris Armson, who's a good friend of mine still. And he and I had gotten to know each other and he, in a way, recruited me internally. And I was like, you know what this is? I mean, it was a small team at the time, like 100 and actually it's interesting about the same size as Stripe, right? About 170 people, which was different than what I'd been doing. So going back to something that was earlier stage internally again to Google, but different kind of a role, different kind of experience. It was a chance to say, okay, maybe I can learn some new things. Maybe I can be challenged. And I was, I was, it was really an interesting project in a lot of ways. But the point is I had just committed. I had just said to Chris, I will at least give you a year. Like I said to him, I said, I'm not sure this is the right role for me or what you need right now. Cause again, the project was not a commercial business. Right. 
you know, you're seeing Waymo now start to be. Yeah, it was kind of a moonshot at that right, point. Right. It was really early. I said, I'm not sure you need me. I'm not sure this is right, but I would love to help you figure it out. And I will commit to you to be here in a year. And then we can just have an open, we were good friends. We can have an open conversation about it. And then I met Patrick, like literally a few weeks later after yeah. that. The first time I met Patrick was, I think, February 2014. So on their side, I think it was unique for different reasons. But for me, I had, I'm a sort of, I really honor my commitments. Yeah. And so for me, I was like, God, this is terrible timing. Like I had just made a decision to stay another year at Google. And I kind of thought, you know what I'm going to do? Do that year and then maybe take time off. Like really do some thinking about what do I want next? And because I had been in a few processes, COO hire kind of growth stage company processes. And I ended up not making the move. And I started to wonder, you know, am I, is this right? Should my hat be in the ring? So on my side, I didn't mind actually quite a long, we spent a lot of time together. They were meeting a lot of different people. They would be busy building a company. They'd disappear for a month and I was fine. I was working away, helping Chris with self-driving cars. So I think it was mutually a long process. And you'd get off your job at Google and Mountain View and then drive up to I the drive. city? Yes. I, several and times. And go spend time with the two of them? Yeah. Yeah, several times. Well, because I had a day job, right? So I would get on 101. They would mark a little cone in their little tiny parking lot. And I would pull my car in at like, whatever, 7 p.m. And we would meet for like three hours or and then I'd drive home. Yeah. We just like worked together. I think yeah. that was really good, actually. Yeah. Which is why I wasn't surprised when I joined. I knew it needed to be done. Yeah. But then you have to do it. Yeah. It feels to me like most companies don't have the luxury of that time? No. Or maybe they do. I don't know. Well, one thing we actually held on to for a long time, we don't do it as much with Stripe, is we would have candidates do a project, like do a working session with us, meaning we'd send them a prompt and we'd say, feel free to prepare something or just come in and let's spend an hour or two talking about this thing. Like we had a whole set of sales candidates who we said, say we want to build an outbound sales team. And this was their background, obviously. And we'd say, why don't you come in? We'll give you a little information about us and where we are. You come in and workshop it with, and it would be me and John Collison in this case. John and I did a lot of the sales hiring and sales building, go-to-market building together. And it was a really great, it's better than an interview. You see what questions they ask you. You see what they do with the data you're giving them. You see what their instincts are. You throw a sort of challenge at them and see how they react. You know, I think that's not a bad, the and sort of spend a day. They'd spend a day with you? It depends. It could be as long as like, I'd say three hours. So half a day. Yeah. It was rare that we did a day, though we did actually, now that I think about it, when we hired our first CFO, he came and joined an offsite. Like we had a planning session away from the office. In my book, I talk about offsites and a lot of them are actually onsite in the office, which is my cheap trick to like, yeah, we're just in a different room. Anyway, this was seriously offsite and we had him join us for a day of it. And, and I he think, wasn't hired yet. No. Okay. He was not. And I think it made sense for a few reasons. It was risky for some reasons. And I, I totally acknowledge that. But we were pretty early. Again, this was like late 2015. Yeah. And I think that was a great decision. Yeah. So maybe hiring processes should include more. Like, maybe. let's work together. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I wonder if there's an illusion of time where people feel more rushed than they really are. Maybe it's supposed to be that you get stuck under this burden of infrastructure debt because you have to make sure you hire the right person. Now, to be fair, if they somehow- I hear a little judgment in there. I'm just no, saying- No, it is true. You can get a version of analysis paralysis and then end up 
in debt. You're yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I wonder if maybe more folks should take more time. But and you know the answer is going to be it depends, yeah. right? I think there are folks who probably are ta- are going too quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's affecting them negatively. And there are folks who are taking too much time. Yeah. I mean, at Stripe, we definitely would hold out for more like the perfect unicorn candidate. Yeah. Probably too much. Yeah. Like if I had to give myself a criticism, I would say I didn't hire that well in certain moments. I didn't hire my, like all this advice coming in is like, look six months, look around the corner. What are you going to need? And I'll be the first to tell you, there was a point I ended up with 23 direct reports and I knew better. I was not a first time operator, but just doing the day to day and I wasn't hiring ahead and I was spending too much time. I'm not going to be the first to say everyone should take more time with the hiring process. But I do think for critical roles, critical moments, things that you're doing for the first time as a company, taking extra time is probably worth it. Yeah. Is it true that one of your final rounds was you on stage in front of the company? Yes. With like 60 people? Yeah. 70 people? More, yeah, basically more. like it was the like whole the, company. It was a Q&A with the whole company. It's like all hands just firing questions yes. at you. You're getting yes. like tomatoed. Yeah. It was, um, I, it's funny because- I remember thinking in my head, not that many candidates would do this. So we had gone through a lot of the process more quietly. I had met some people in the company, but then the founders realized this was true. And I talk about this in my book, which is it's one thing to decide you need to hire an executive or a new leader. It's another to get buy-in. And like you got to run a process that builds buy-in. And if you haven't, which I would say we maybe hadn't quite run a process that built buy-in or in hiring me and I can explain why, but you know, I, it had just been quieter and also quiet because I wanted to be confidential. I was still at Google. Sure. So we got to this point where they were like, okay, we like think we want to hire you. And I was like, and I think I want to join. So we kind of, you know, it's like before you propose, but you kind of know everyone's yeah. going to say yes or it's yeah. going to happen. But we hadn't actually had a contract or anything. Anyway, they said, I think you really need to meet more people. And at that point I had spent so much time and I still did have a family and a job. And I said, all right, well, what do you think that looks like? And then they came up with this idea. They'll just come and do a Q&A with everybody. I said, you mean every single person in the company could ask me a question? And they were like, yeah, that'll, that'll be really efficient. <laughs> and I remember thinking there are not that many candidates who would agree to this. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually, I didn't mind. And of course, it was a lot of engineers yeah. who had very direct and pointed questions, including the one that's most memorable to me was, where did I think the expansion in the business model was? Like, what was the most interesting thing that Stripe should be doing but wasn't doing? Um, How'd you answer that? Okay, I'll tell you. I answered it, and it's funny because we aren't doing this, but it's still really interesting. But and Maybe this is an opportunity to say what Stripe does. Oh, Yeah. Stripe builds economic infrastructure for the internet. Okay, mm-hmm. what does that mean? It's like billing and payments infrastructure. So instead of you, you're building your company, you're running your company, and you have to build actually quite a big stack in the old days internally, right? Hook up with various different entities, whether that's Visa and MasterCard or a payment processing sort of middleware. And Stripe is like, no, just use our API and we'll do all of it for you. And then way beyond just accepting payments, paying out, if you have a subscription model, all of your managing your different subscription packages and your, mm-hmm. and, and anyway, the point is that's important to know because that economic infrastructure, that commerce infrastructure for companies, and it's not just tech companies, it's like any company, I mean, everyone's doing business on the internet, you yep. get that. But the point is, what do you have when you're 
in many cases, Stripe processes all of the payments in and out for a whole company. That's a lot of insight on your customers. Like, especially if you have a product you would like people to repeat purchase, Mm -hmm. which I think every company would like. And some people build that into their model and some don't directly. And so what I said at that all hands was, and remember, I'd been working at Google and parts of my time at Google, I'd worked on AdWords and I'd worked on various versions of how do you optimize and get an ROI view? You show an ad, someone purchases. Don't you want to know, one, that that ad was effective, but two, how can you then get that person back as a customer, Mm -hmm. right? And so if you think about what payment data represents, you know, it's an opportunity to optimize that. So that's what I talked about. Mm. I talked about kind of a CRM meets payments vision, customer relationship management, customer insights and payments, and then how you could serve up to to us. Stripe could serve to our merchants, our users, really great insights on their customer's behavior and their opportunities in their customer's behavior. Yeah. Right? Like that... I mean, I'm pitching you now. I like it. I was thinking about it. It's a pretty good idea. It's a pretty good idea. I don't know. So, yes, apparently I got hired. Yeah, I was going to say. So the engineer liked the answer. But you didn't do it. No. No. Square's pretty well positioned to maybe do that, too. A lot of companies. I mean, not a lot, a lot. But yeah. Yeah. And Square, you know, obviously has more in my mind a small business. Yeah. Who I, I mean, I, gosh, small businesses, I love them and they'll break your heart. I worked a (laughs) ton with them when I worked on AdWords. And anything they can get right? Yeah. It's important yeah. because they don't have time. Yeah. They're like one to three people companies trying yeah. to do it all. Yeah. So yes, I think Square has a version of that opportunity. Stripe has a more scaled version of that I would agree with you. Claire, um, I asked John Collison okay. <laughs> about the Q&A. About the Q&A. And he's very thoughtful. And he was like, you know, we just thought it was the most effective way to build consensus and to have everyone feel participatory in the decision-making yeah. process. Right. That's the buy-in and, part. And that right? made a lot of sense to me. Yes. I actually agreed with that. So did I, which is why I did it. <laughs> but it was kind of risky and scary, right? I think it worked. Well, I guess. I think they it didn't, worked. They didn't run me out after six <laughs> months. There's a chapter in your book. It's in chapter one around essential operating principles. Yes. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was you talk about building self-awareness to build mutual Mm -hmm. awareness. That's my number one. I loved that section. Did you? I loved it. Can you talk about it? Yeah. I think, I mean, what does that mean? The fundamental, sure. The fundamental thing that that is based on is my belief that management does not start with the other people. Leadership does not start with the other people in the room, the people in your company. It starts with you. And there is, I think, this sort of, well, but management, I'm supporting all these others and I have to know them and do all the right things for them. And that is true. But actually, if you don't know yourself, you are not going to be very successful, in my opinion, as a manager and a leader, because you have to understand your work style preferences, your habits, your blind spots. You know, we all have tendencies. I know I have a tendency when I'm under stress. I have certain behaviors. And I now can recognize them. But think how powerful it would be if you could say to people, hey, when I'm under stress, I'm going to do this thing. And what I would love for you to do is call me on it. Tell me, hey, you're rushing through the decision or you're not communicating the context right now. And I think you're under pressure. Right. And what it's all about to me is how do you use and there's a lot of tools out there and there's ones that I favor, but 
you know, a lot of people have taken Myers-Briggs or the MBTI tool. There's a tool called DISC. There's the Insights Discovery tool. There's the Big Five, which is just a personality test you can find, I think, for free on the internet. And it tells you some things, right? Your sort of level of agreeableness or conscientiousness or neuroticism. And those tools... I think people get nervous about them because, you know, is it like an astrology report where you're like, oh, I recognize myself. They're not perfect. And none of us can be put in one bucket. But they are fundamentally, if you know how to filter them for yourself, they're going to give you insight into your behaviors and to your attitudes, to your preferences. And I think one of the things that we all do, especially when we're hiring, is we hire people and we relate to people who are like us. And we don't even know what that means, right? Because when you say, well, what do you mean they're like me? But, you know, maybe you're really attracted to other extroverts if you're mm. particularly extroverted. Yeah. And that may be good if you're running a sales team and you need a bunch of extroverts. Yeah. But you're going to end up with a really lopsided team if you aren't aware of the fact that the people you might be connecting to in the interview process are not complementary to you. In fact, some of the people I've managed who probably challenged me the most and drove me a little crazy made me and my teams way better. But I don't know that I would have hired them had I not been aware that I resisted their talents, right? That's the thing. And I'll just finish with one thing, yeah, go ahead. which is like the very basic assessment of all of these is like how introverted or extroverted are you and how task or people oriented are you? And if you can just even map yourself on those quadrants, you know, I'm pretty extroverted and I'm very people oriented or I'm pretty introverted and I'm very task oriented. Then you're starting to build the insights that you can use to one, gravitate toward the work that's going to make you most successful, but also build a better team. Do you think there's a way to cultivate self-awareness? A hundred percent. Like I've taken so many of these assessments and then also you show the results to someone who knows you and works well and they will, I hope, reflect back and say to you, oh, this is interesting. I see that behavior. I see you do that thing. Yeah. Has that become harder over time? Let me tell you why I asked that. It's because you are or were the COO of what is one of the most successful private companies ever. And number one, it becomes very hard to tell that Claire what's really going on because she's this really big, fancy executive, <laughs> right? And number two... Do you get wrapped up in that? Is it hard yeah, yeah. when you're writing the textbooks on how to lead, right? I just wonder, does it get harder over time? Yeah, and to be clear, although it's a like a reference book or textbook, <laughs> I am not academically credentialed to write a textbook and I wouldn't want anyone to think that. What I think you're getting at is a great push. And I think this happens for founders and it happens for people who might be viewed to be successful executives, which I guess I would be one of those people, which is, yeah, do you like start believing your own press, right? And also, do people not tell you the truth? Who's giving you the feedback when you are driving your team crazy or you're not making a good decision? And I think one of the things I admire about Patrick and John, and I'd like to think we have in common, which is part of how maybe our partnership worked, is I think we're all pretty grounded and tend to be more humble than confident mm -hmm. in some ways and also curious. I think there are people who are learners who are just oriented toward learning and asking for feedback and 
finding new data. And I think we're all very learning oriented in different ways, though. They've probably both pushed me to be more learning oriented than I even was. So to this point, yeah. Did I become a know-it-all? Have I become sometimes? Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, you get overconfident if you've seen, I have seen a lot of pattern. Yeah. Like my pattern match in a high growth environment, Google 10 years, Stripe eight years. Like I have seen a lot. Yeah. And sure, can that tilt me into a place where I'm not as open? Yeah. Where maybe I'm not as ready to accept what I think I know isn't, it's the things that you don't know and that you don't know you don't know that can kill you, right? That also hurt the most. That's what hurts the most. Because as soon as you hear it, you have that knot in your stomach because there's that 1% of you that felt it Mm -hmm. and couldn't quite put your finger on it. And then someone says it and it just rocks your world. That's right. And it's almost immediate in my experience. Yeah. And you know it's almost immediate because there's a, usually a visceral reaction associated with that's it. That's right. Like and it's, it's, very it's hard in your to body, separate. right? The reaction is, that's what I mean. Like, yes, yes. In your body. Yes. And you're like, why am I feeling like I'm going to throw up? Well, what was the, And you're like, yes. What was the hardest feedback you've ever gotten? And from who? Hmm. So the thing that first comes to my mind is an interesting one because- I got it from an engineering leader that we'd hired at Stripe. And then later, Patrick gave me another version of this same feedback. And the feedback was, I think you should act more like a founder. Like you are very early in this company. This We were still pretty early at Stripe yeah. at this point. And she was trying to compliment me in a way. She's like, we need you, but I don't feel your leadership in a founder-like way. Yeah. Like really, And it's really an ownership thing, right? Yeah. Do you really own this thing? Yeah. And I don't think you're having, in some ways, I think she was saying to me, I don't think you're having enough influence. Mm. And it really made me think. Then later, a few years later, Patrick, I think one of the hallmarks of our relation, actually mine with both of the Collisons, is a lot of open feedback between us. And they both really take on a lot of feedback and handle it actually really impressively. But I probably unleash on them privately more than anyone they've worked with. I'm guessing. I'm just guessing that. I was unleashing a little bit on Patrick. I remember this conference. We were in this like tiny conference room with like two little chairs. And I was railing about something we weren't doing well as a company. But I was kind of blaming him. And he, by the way, agreed. Like this thing is not going well. But then he kind of turned back to me. He's like, this is your company too. It's like you're outside looking in as I was saying the things Mm. and yeah, wake up call Yeah, that I needed to feel it more. I think sometimes my power is that I can separate myself. I can compartmentalize, but you know, your greatest strength is often your greatest weakness. My ability to sort of not care sometimes so I don't get too invested is also really dangerous. Yeah. But it's also what keeps your equilibrium pretty even. Yes. Oh yeah. I'm super stable. When you say that they take feedback surprisingly well, yeah. what does that look like? Like, what does it mean to take feedback well? One, they ask for it a lot. So you're not going to get any feedback if you don't ask for it. I mean, I walk in the door and they were shopping their ideas. They'd write up a thing, an idea, send it to 10 different stripes and be like, what do you think? What do you think? You know, constantly workshopping, asking for feedback, asking for learning. So that's one, they ask for it. Two, when you deliver it. Here's the other feedback, by the way, that I've gotten, which is I don't think I'm being defensive, but someone will give me feedback and I'll try to explain the context. And that's defensiveness, right? I've come over time 
to be a little better at just saying thank you mm. or like, wow, I appreciate you shared that. Right. And then what I say in the book is maybe come back later and try to explain it. Right. But in that moment, it's going to feel defensive. And yeah. the person, especially if there's a power imbalance, which you're getting at, yeah. like if you're their manager or you're yeah. leading the company, it's risky for them to say that. And the minute you're trying to explain it away, you're kind of pushing them away. Yeah. Right. And so Patrick and John both have a great way of just like nodding. And you're saying, as I said, I kind of unleash them and they're nodding and they're like, okay, wow. All right. Well, and they'll probe. They'll say, well, exactly what happened or give me an example of that thing. So they're learning and they're using it. And no, they don't take all the feedback and know that. And, you know, this is a mistake you can make. It's not all accurate. Right. right? Someone's going to come with criticism there. They don't have all the context. Yeah. But they're taking it on board. They're appreciating it. Yeah. And then they're deciding, you know, do I really need to act on this or not? But yeah. but that's what I mean by yeah. just impressive. But it, mostly just asking for it. One of what I thought was the most impressive forms of self-awareness was your how to work with Claire Doc. <laughs> yeah, people do like that. I thought it was such an amazing example of how to be self-aware because you're basically, well, I'll let you explain it. What is that? So this one has gotten, I mean, I don't think viral is the right word, but. I feel like you're on the map partially because, because of, of this, this thing. Because of I know, it's weird. So this unauthorized guide to working with Claire is something that I wrote actually back when I was at Google. And it is essentially a, I mean, look, here's the hard part about being in a high growth environment, especially, which is you have new managers all the time or yeah. teams are reforming and reorganizing and like constant change. And how do you accelerate the connection between you and the person working with you? Like you need to move faster, mm -hmm. right? And so it was a way, so what the guide is, is essentially like, this is how I think I work and this is how I think my preferences show up, my good habits, my bad ones. And I'm going to send this to you when you first start working with me, especially if I'm your manager. And then I say, please tell me if this seems right or wrong to you. Like, give me feedback. That's why I call it the unauthorized guide. I'm like, I don't know, because it's, again, we're not all fully self-aware. But I ask for feedback and I say, does this ring true once you've worked with me for a while? And I certainly have shopped it around to people I trust to, to vet it. But I wrote it because I had been facilitating a few times at Google. I facilitated, we'd do a great manager award. This is when Google was more scaled. And had the great managers share best practices. And one of them shared that they'd taken inspiration from a guide written by Urs Holzel, who's like a longtime Google engineering leader, who I think called it his user manual. And I actually hadn't read his when I wrote mine, and I was kind of glad, because I think mine is quite different. Mine is more like the uniquely, authentically me version of yeah. a user manual. But I loved that suggestion. So I went back to my Google, like we didn't have offices, whatever. I went back to my little desk and I wrote the first draft. And actually that first draft, it's like still pretty close to what I have today. But I brought it to Stripe. I wrote it. I used it internally at Google when I had new members of my team. I had people who worked with me give me feedback on it. Then I went to Stripe and I mentioned it to someone. And my team got really, my first sort of people I was managing we're like, oh, send it to us, send it. So I sent it. And then a bunch of them wrote their own back to me. And it was so efficient, first of all, and also effective. I was like, oh, we all got to know each other like so much faster. Yeah. So good because you got to work better together really quickly when you're under pressure. Yeah. It got out into the world because Elad Gill, who had been a product leader at Google, who I knew, who's now an investor and advisor to lots of impressive companies, including Stripe, 
And he and I actually reconnected when I joined Stripe and had lunch together and talked. Anyway, he ended up writing a book called High Growth Handbook for Stripe Press, which has been very popular and I think was a smart, great, I mean, really, it's a collection of chapters of interviews that Alad did with leaders of different kinds of leaders, you know, like Reed Hoffman or Patrick Carlson. And then I ended up in the list somehow. It seems like a little bit of nepotism because I worked at Stripe and uh-huh. Stripe Press published the book. I'm uh-huh. fully going to acknowledge that. <laughs> but Alad, I think in 30 minutes, interviewed me and I put a bunch of my ideas out in that interview. And I mentioned this working with Claire guy. And yeah. Alad's like, Claire, we got to put that in the High Growth Handbook. I said, mm-hmm. I was like, excuse me? Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, like your example of the guide. I said, you want me to put into the world, like available on the internet, my working with Claire document. And he was like, believe me. I said, I don't know why anyone would want to see that. And this is an example of me being a learner. And he said, Claire, that thing will be catnip to founders. Yeah. And I said, really? And he was right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think every founder should actually do something like that. That's what we ended up talking about in the interview. Yeah. Really quick, because I want to go through what reads just like, it's unbelievable your background. You went to Brown, then you went to Yale to get your MBA. Then you did a bunch of political and legal stuff kind of along the way, Mm -hmm. super random. Mm -hmm. And then- I have a very random group. Very random. And then Cheryl Sandberg hired you into Google? Yep. Is that right? That's right. Was it obvious to you then how badass she was? Was she Cheryl Sandberg yet? No. I mean, I in what in the way that I'm interpreting what you're saying. No, I mean, this was 2004. Right. Or again, pre-IPO Google. Mm-hmm. I remember distinctly what she said the to pre-Facebook. me. Pre-Facebook. Oh yeah. yeah no, yeah. no, no. She yeah. she went to Facebook in 2008, right? Yeah. Um, from Google. Yeah. No, she hadn't joined that long before me at yeah. Google. Yeah. And, but she'd been building this online sales and operations team. Yeah. And I remember in my final sort of interview with her, she was pitching me on taking the role. She told me the story of, I think, Eric Schmidt and Omid Kordestani, mm. who both of those names, people who know Google's history would recognize, had said something to, to the effect to her, which was like, look, this thing is a rocket ship. Don't argue about what seat you're on. Just get on it. Right. And she's giving me this pitch and I'm still new. I had just moved to California. I had no job. Yeah. I was not like thinking I was going to have a career in tech. And I was like, um, yeah, okay. But she was very impressive. So was she Cheryl? Yeah. She was like incredibly persuasive yeah. and smart and yeah. charismatic yeah. and on top of her, you know what, like yeah. already for yeah. sure. And so, yeah, she helped sell me on the role. But Google, I mean, the process was brutal, by the way. Getting hired at Google at that point was like- Worse than Stripe? Well, different, but like 10 or 11 interviews. I had to write an essay. <laughs> I had to fill out a test on AdWords to prove that- Come on. I, you had, no, you had to really demonstrate you wanted it. I think that was Google's founders being paranoid, honestly. And she left four years after that, but then you ended up staying another almost eight, se- yeah, six, I seven stayed years after that. in the end. Was there ever a world, because a lot of people went, went with, with Cheryl to Facebook. Yeah. Was there ever a world where you almost did that? Um, yeah. I was contacted by Facebook and I did have a few interviews. Yeah. And I th- made a decision that pretty early in that process that I was going to learn more being part of the next phase of Google. That's how you made the decision. Yes. Then I was going to learn. I'm a very learning again. I'm very learning and impact oriented. Yeah. And I think I had this impression, which by the way is probably right and wrong, 
which was if I go back and help build essentially what I was being pitched was like help build online sales and operations, this org that Cheryl had built for Google, go help build it for Facebook. And I was like, but I just helped do that. I mean, I wasn't in charge of all of it, yeah. but I kind of was like, but isn't this going to be interesting to see what Google does next? Yeah. And I was going to get a lot more responsibility. Yeah. You know, and I did as, as Cheryl left. You kind of took her I job, right? I essentially ended up with like half her job. Yeah. They split I mean, it into this, two. There's some steps to that, but they did. Yes. And so that was the call I made. And by the way, I think you could, to your point about like sort of sliding doors, parallel universe. Sure. I would have had an interesting, very interesting run, I think, doing whatever that version of my life would have been at Facebook. The other reason I didn't join, so the one was learning, mostly it was about impact learning, what I thought I would get out of the time at Google, which I did. That yeah. next period of my career at Google was very important to me, yeah. personally, but I hope for Google too, was that I didn't love the Facebook product. Though I'm on the business side of tech, I like care about technology and I care about what it means and it represents in the world yeah. and what where I think it's going to go. I spent, I mean, I guess you could say to me, I'm not necessarily the f- most fantastic investor. Well, at least I don't know yet. I've only made a few yeah. angel investments, but you know, your time is your most precious resource. And I chose Google or it chose me and I chose Stripe. And I think part of that assessment is actually pretty clinical and emotional. One, what do these companies represent? What do I think they're trying to do in the world? And then two, does it matter? And will it be a good business? Mm-hmm. And we're, we're all a little bit idealistic sometimes in Silicon Valley, but I love that idealism, which is like, is this going to further society and progress in some way? Matters a lot to me. So that was the other thing is I wasn't as compelled. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, what surprises me is that when you were considering leaving the self-driving cars group at Google, Mm. you said, you know, maybe I'll just take a year. I'll take six months. You took a day. I took a day off. What the hell? (laughs) I actually kind of took a week. I took a day and I started and then I took a few more days. But like, let's say I took five days. What's up with that? Well, I mean, it was just what had to be done. You didn't feel like you wanted a break? Of course I wanted a break, but Stripe couldn't afford that. Like, right? I mean, like that... There's sort of a time and a place to take a break. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't it. Yeah, maybe it's closer to now. But we did actually have a conversation, Patrick and I, as we, again, toward the end of my recruiting process, I said to him, I'm worried I might be burned out. Like, I had been going a million miles an hour at Google for 10 years, and I'd had two maternity leaves, but anyone who's had a maternity leave will tell you that is not, in fact, a break. Mm. That is not a break. Mm-hmm. And I said, there's a chance. I said, he's. we were talking about what are the risks? So what are the risks when you hire an executive? You know, one risk is they don't have cultural chemistry, you know, or they're just bad. But we decided I probably had those. I was culturally going to be, you know, in line with Stripe. And I I don't think I'm like, wasn't going to be effective. But I told him I thought the biggest risk was that I'd be exhausted (laughs) and that I couldn't achieve the balance to keep going. And we didn't really resolve that conversation. We're like, well, that is a risk. We're taking that risk. But I know myself well enough. I was like, the minute I commit to this job, I'm going to be all in. I'm not going to leave it after six months, you know, mm-hmm. and that's just me. But that's what that represented, which is like I said yes, and I was all in and Stripe needed me to start yesterday. And I started the next day, like basically. Yeah. In chapter five, the other my other favorite section of the book was about managing high performers. Yeah. And the way that you split this up is into pushers and pullers. And I actually thought about you when I was reading oh, this. And yeah. my thought was that Claire is a puller. Would you agree with that? Definitely. And maybe could you just describe what that means and why you would categorize yourself as a puller? Yeah. 
this I came up with this. I don't think there's any academic material on the pushers and pullers. No, I've never read it before. You've never read no. it before, right? But I've had several, again, not many people have the book yet, but people who have been my early readers, yeah. including David Singleton, who's Stripe CTO, who's a great, amazing person I worked with at Google, who I think I helped bring to Stripe. Anyway, he pinged me and he's like, I thought your pushers and pullers thing was really good, yeah. which meant a lot to me because he's been a leader I admire for a long time. But anyway, so the pusher, I'll start with the pushers and I'll end with the pullers, which is me, which is the pushers are like all over you. They want more. They want more responsibility. They are very critical of others. And they can be hard to work with because their standards are just so freaking high and they can be so critical. But like you give them, I mean, a pusher, you give them a project that has a wall in front of it, they will knock down the freaking wall, right? And you're like, that person is just a machine, right? And they can be, they often are all over you about recognition. They want more compensation. They want more responsibility. They want to be publicly, right? Like they have a, a drive, right? An ambition, but they are just the word just came to me is like, they're like a really amazing weapon, frankly, of like, I've got to get stuff done. There's that pusher. They can struggle though with the fact that, yeah, not everyone is going to perform the way they perform or have the same attitude toward work that they have. And they will become very intolerant of people who just like in their mind don't get it. And that can be challenging to build a team, right? So you've got to manage them and also give them recognition, but keep them challenged because there's never enough. And also the team around them will start to resent them. Um, so that's the pusher. Can I make one more commentary on the pusher? I have found that the pushers have a hard time prioritizing, mainly because mm. they have the They're ability so to take on so much. Yes. And they are appropriately estimating how much they can take on because it's usually the world. And so it's hard for, in my experience, sometimes the pusher to prioritize what's the most important thing. What is the thing? Because in their mind, they can push on all they the things. They can do all the things. They can do all the things. And they're extremely impatient. Yes. So and they do not impatient. like to say, I'm not going to do that thing. That and they is don't like, like not... hearing that you shouldn't do something. And by the way, both the pushers and the pullers have this problem, but very differently. Yeah. Right. Which is the pullers like, well, I'll just help you. Like they're more empathetic. They're like, oh, but you need me. Like, yeah. Listen to me. I'm like, I joined Strive after one day off because <laughs> right. they really needed right. me. Yes. Right. And the pusher is more like, I can do it. I yes. can, I can do anything. Yes. And I think you're right. Neither of them is then prioritizing. Yeah. And by the way, all, both of those types are going to end up at some point in the deep end and have mm -hmm. trouble swimming. Mm -hmm. And the key is if you work with them, you're their manager, you're their leader. What are you doing? What's the life buoy that you're throwing them? Yep. I think in early in my management career, I would try to prevent them from doing that to themselves. And what I've learned is actually sometimes you want to let they need to fail. Yeah. Because that's how we all learn. Yeah. We learn when we mess up. Yeah. And so I'm probably less likely, I'm definitely less likely today to bail them before they know they're drowning. Yeah. And I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to let you. And then we're going to have a real conversation. Totally. About the fact that you're not prioritizing mm -hmm. or you're not saying in the case of the puller, you're not saying no, which is my problem. So the puller is much more of the stable, steady. Again, I guess I'm one of them, but I have these people around me. I'm like, you can basically give them any project and they will just quietly be like, oh yeah, I'll take that on and then just work their butt off, but not in a pushing, demanding, look at me kind of way, but more of a slightly, I mean, this is the problem with, I'll speak for myself now. My challenge has always been, I will not say no enough. I will take on a bunch of this stuff. And then I'm like, sort of get 
one overburdened, but a little bit like start to feel like a martyr. Like, oh my God, I'm the only one doing all this stuff. Yeah. Right. And you have to not get to that point because yeah. it's very dangerous. The thing I regret, actually, I was recording the audio book for Scaling People as I read my recommendations for working with the pushers and the pullers. On the pushers, I made a recommendation and like, yes, you do need to give them recognition because that's part of their fuel is they want to know their impact. I mean, they're all about impact. They're all about getting shit done, right? And the pullers section, I didn't say give them recognition when I should have because the pullers don't ask for it. And the problem is they get to that point, that breaking point where they've been doing so much and taken on so much and then they become resentful and then they decide the only way to get out of the situation they've gotten themselves into is to leave, right? They will just surprise you. They'll show up and they've all of a sudden hit a wall and they think, well, I can't say no, so thus I must blow up the building. I've been there. I mean, I know what you have to do is one, work with them before they get to that point, but two, give them recognition because part of what's also happening is they don't feel acknowledged for what they're carrying and what they're doing. And recognition meaning the promotion or the title or what have you, they don't tend to be as compensation oriented, but by the way, I'm all for fair compensation. So if you're rewarding your pushers, your top talent in a certain way, you better be doing the same thing for your pullers. And I think that's another mistake that gets made. Well, because sometimes the squeaky wheel gets the uh-huh. whatever the yeah. grief, whatever yeah, the expression yeah, yeah. is. Especially if they're a top talent. Yes. Because you don't want to lose them. Yes. And the thing that I thought about specific to this context is how do you build a team around these types of profiles? And I do think that it's important to think about that balance. Mm-hmm. And to your point earlier of hiring people that look like you, often if you're a puller, yeah. you'll hire pullers. Mm-hmm. And if you're a pusher, you'll hire pushers. And if you don't have some semblance right. of balance, it's either going to be too quiet or too loud. It's like the force. Yes. It's like you the need force. balance in the force and it's you like, can feel the disturbance. It's like the force. And you also, I think, need a leader who has the ability to recognize what they are because they need to feed and nurture them with the right fuel. That is right. And if they you can't, have to manage they don't know. different people differently. Jason. Yes. Yes. And this, these two types have to be managed quite differently. And just to put a bow on this full circle, if you don't know what you are, you're not going to know what they are. That goes back to self-awareness. Yeah. If you don't have that self-awareness, you're not going to build what I call mutual awareness, which is how you build a great team. Yeah. And by the way, I think every team you have as a portfolio of talent, there are times when you can have a lot of top talent, but that portfolio, it probably also includes some people who aren't pushers or pullers, but who are very talented steady eddies, yeah. right? And if they're not getting recognized and included, that also can blow up. I mean, it's like the all-star. It's like when we sent the NBA all-stars to the Olympics and they lost, yeah, right? Because they were a bunch of all-stars who weren't a team. Yeah. And so what you're describing is 100% like, there's a whole section in my book about intentional team development. Yeah. Because one, you got to recognize the type of talent you have. Two, you got to know yourself. And three, you actually have to invest in that group respecting each other. Yeah. And- Pushers and pullers don't always recognize each other has value. Yeah. And that can be one of the best. If you can get that to happen, you're going to get a much more high performing team. You're going to get results. It's funny you say that. I agree with the third party, which is not the pusher, not the puller, but the steady eddy. And the steady eddy, in my mind, is not the A plus player, honestly, in my opinion. What I've generally seen is it's usually the consistently good, but rarely world class, but consistently good. I struggle with that one the most, if that makes sense, because Mm -hmm. 
I always want to push that person. And I actually think it's the one that I discount the most because sometimes having There's someone- There's your blind spot maybe. Sometimes, exactly. Because sometimes having someone yep. that I can count on no matter what. That's right. Especially when things are going crazy. And I do not have a very narrow emotional band. I can get up. Mm-hmm. I don't really get down that much, but I can easily get up. I'm like a little kid. Are you very, a bit of a pusher? I am a... <laughs> so it's funny because I was trying to figure out where am I in this spectrum. I'm definitely a pusher. Yep. However, the feedback that I always get is that I need to be more consensus building. Like mm-hmm. I need to do more of the... Bring people along. Bring people along, mm-hmm. which I think pushers have a hard time, generally speaking, doing. Look at this. You're building self-awareness yeah, right yeah. here. That's right. That's right. But nonetheless, neither here nor there, I've always found myself having the hardest time needing the steady Eddie the most and having the hardest time recognizing and empowering that person. So true. But like really desperate actually for that level of consistency. Yes. And showing up every day. Stable and consistently good. Yeah. And by the way, a lot, often culture carriers, right? Often people who quietly model what you really want and need. Yes. And I think, and I can stop talking about me, but if I was being really honest on why I have such a hard time with that profile is that I can't see much of myself in them because I'm like, why aren't you bringing it? Yeah. You know, and you can't bring everything every day and be as consistent as that person is. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I'm trying to like bring this like lion out of the person when they don't, that's not their MO. Right. And this is the part of management that's hard, which is again, you want to surround yourself with people who are complimentary to you, but then you're not relating to them because you're like, why aren't you bringing it? Like bring the fire. And I think one, the first step is recognizing this and saying, okay, what do I do about the fact But also using it, which is, I would say for me, for that steady Eddie, which I probably should have written a section. I did write a section about sort of medium performers, but I think what we're talking about is actually quite good performers. Yeah. But they don't end up in the upper tail, right? They're not, is you can push them. Part of your value, given your strength, and you have to be careful, you have to modulate it because they are not going to do it every day. They are not going to bring it, but you're going to give them constructive feedback and you're going to say, there's going to be a moment, a project, a really critical thing for the team where I want to see you get outside your comfort zone. I want to see you be the leader, be the driver. And that can be very good for them, right? Because we all learn when we're being you know, challenged and inspired. But you have to change your calibration on what that looks like because you're expecting it all the time. And for them, their value is how they show up so consistently every day. But they could benefit from you. You can benefit from them, but only if you both know that. And you have a safe sort of meta language to talk about. Like you literally saying, hey, I know I'm this way. Yeah. Come try it out with me a little bit. Yeah, that's right. And But that's I right. also value you for being that way. That's right. And that conversation can be so powerful. And I value it because I'm so conceited that because I see it myself, <laughs> therefore I expect it from everybody else. Well, I'm not going to say you're conceited. <laughs> But I'm going to say that you building that dimension and recognizing that there are differences that you need is going to make you so powerful. That's why I love this section. Oh, I'm glad. Um, I'm really glad. One other section that I wanted to talk to you about is, I don't know what you call this, but the three rings that are layered on top of each other. What is that? (laughs) The Venn diagram of impact and passion and ability. Yes. Like that. I'm trying to like remember that section of the book. So I'll tell you where this came from. Yes, please. Which is I... um, have seen Condoleezza Rice, who I think is a very impressive person, speak a few times. 
she came to Stripe and she spoke, but I, this particular story was at a conference, a small conference, like one of these small events that somebody puts on and you're like, wow, this is great. I'm like with a hundred other people we're hearing from this impressive woman. And, you know, you may not agree with everything that Condoleezza Rice has done in her career, but you are very mistaken if you don't think she's an impressive person. Anyway, she was asked a question, which is after she had been in the Bush administration in a couple of different roles, as you hopefully know, including uh, an opportunity to be Secretary of State, you know, she was asked, you could have done anything, right? You could have gone on to like any number of paths in your career. And you went back to Stanford. And she's also done a lot of other things. If you follow, I think she's now a part owner of the Denver Broncos. Yeah. And she's like involved in golf in this like really intense First way. First woman and to be admitted into exactly, Augusta. into Augusta. Yeah. Anyway, point is she's got a real sports thing that I admire too. Anyway, point is though, Stanford is her home base and her foundational place. And she teaches there and she's written books. And so she's asked, why did you go back to Stanford? Like kind of go back to where you were. Was It was a little bit of a judgmental question, mm. right? And she said, look- you know, when you're making a decision, and by the way, this is a position that you're lucky to be in, I would say, this is my judgment, if you can make these choices in your career, which is, she said, I wanted to assess where did I have interest and passion? Where did I have ability? I'm good at it. And I would have impact. And education to her was that combination, passionate about education, effective at it. And it mattered to her. It was going to be impactful. And I really related to that because I think where people go wrong in their career, one is if they're really passionate about something, but they're not good at it or they're really good at a thing, but maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it's not as impactful. Finding that combination, by the way, being self-aware enough to know I'm good at this thing. I'm not as good at this thing, but also that combination of this is the thing I really love And I can be good at part of it, and I'm needed. I love the framing. Yeah. In my experience, those that are great at things, that are very high achievers and performers, that Mm -hmm. are great on the ability scale, generally, that's the miss that I've seen more often than not, because it's easy to trick yourself into loving something. That's right. If you're really good at it. Oh my gosh. Uh Or or you can get really good. And what it gives you, right? What that like feeds your ego. It's so true. Yeah. No, I have a thing in the book where I talk about, I'm not afraid to ask for money. Like, I think I'm actually pretty good at fundraising and whether that's a nonprofit setting or a company setting, I don't love it, but I'm good at it. You could find yourself being drawn into spending a lot of time doing something like that. And if it's not your passion, you wake up 10 years later and you're like, oh my God, Mm -hmm. this is my job, Mm -hmm. right? You have to be really careful. This is, again, we're being self-aware, standing back, writing down, What do I really love? Is there a part of the book you're most proud of? Well, Patrick and John really pushed me to write Scaling People. It was not my idea. And why they did, well, it's a lot of why Stripe exists, which is like, you shouldn't have to know me to get my advice or to, now you're assuming that my advice is good, but let's say my advice can be helpful. Yeah, It's about democratization of access, which, you know, again, we talk a lot about in an idealistic way. But that's what Stripe is, right? You should be able to build a company anywhere in the world and accept payments. And it shouldn't be that you're based in some particular country or market. Because actually building a business does require you to accept payments and move money. Not just a business. A lot of institutions, a lot of organizations. And that's not necessarily always the case. 
you could do it, but it would be very, very challenging. I mean, you know this. Young companies, there was a time where it was like hard to get a bank account because you had no business history. And the bank would be like, well, we can't give you an account because you have no business history. Like this is, we're trying to solve that access. Well, in this case, it's about information. I'm proud of the fact that this thing exists. And if it's useful to like anybody, any part of it is useful to anybody. That is very rewarding to me because I cannot meet everybody or it is scalable. It is about putting something out in the world. And I'm a little nervous because people are saying nice things about me or about the book and not that many people have read it. I'm like, oh, when they read it, I right. hope they still right. think that. And that. Maybe that's it. It feels like a risk. Yeah. It feels like a risk like to me. Like you're putting yourself out there? Yeah. Well, like I'm putting, like I'm. well, this is where maybe fundamentally, I don't think it's imposter syndrome. I think it's a form of, I don't have all the answers. I'm not an expert. I've just done this a lot. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to make an assumption that that means I'm really good at it. Yeah. And it makes me nervous to put myself out there as someone who is an example. Do you feel maybe to put words in your mouth, do you feel like maybe it's a little bit that you're one of the people that wrote the books reflecting on their career type things where, hey, I think it is imposter syndrome. You say it's not, but like, isn't it like, Mm. hey, is everyone going to think this is good? Am I in a position to be able to give people this advice? Is this apply advice like applicable to everybody else's situation? Are those not the thoughts that are going through your head? Yeah, I think I just tend to be a pretty nuanced thinker where if really your context really matters. Right. And that's why I over talk, which you're experiencing this interview a little bit. Like I really like to try to explain the whole thing because I really believe that your environment matters. And so I think that it makes me nervous. I find a lot of business books, honestly, and management books a little bit reductive. Yeah. Right. Like here's the framework and just use this framework. And that's not how life works. That's why operators, all the best operators know that Mm -hmm. it's the messy stuff. It's when all these things are working kind of at counter purposes And you have to somehow move the ball down the field. That's what's kind of amazing about being an operator. And so anything you write down is not perfect because it's not in the context. Well, it's based on your context. But but it it is based on the experience that you had. I did have one reader who used to work with me at Google, who's a good friend, who said to me, he was like, Claire, nowhere in the book do you mention in any really meaningful way that you're very successful. In this case, he said, woman in business. And he's like, don't you think you're an example to others? And I said, well, that's not what this book is about. It's not about my career and it's not about my level of success, I guess. And he said, yeah, but I feel like people look up to you. (laughs) Shouldn't you say that? And I think I added one sentence in the book that (laughs) I hoped I was a good example. And he's like, that was very lame of you. Um, (laughs) But I mean, what you're hearing, I hope, is that on the self-awareness, like I try to be very authentically, like why do people relate to me as a leader? Mm. I think because I'm very much who I am. I'm very consistent. How I show up is who I am. And what I say to you is honest and as my best representation. And I think that it's just not on brand for me to be self-promotional. Yeah, makes total sense. I completely, completely get that. And here I am doing a podcast with you. It is terrible. I love it. It is excellent. Well, and look, (laughs) the reason that a lot of founders want to read the book is because they value your experience. And there's just not that many people that get to sit across the table from you and ask you whatever the hell I want to ask you for an hour and a half. And I think being able to share that much more easily is important. 
Well, I appreciate that. And I think that's what Patrick and John said. They said, there are founders who want the information in your head. Yes. And you've done this. Now you've done some of these things a few times with some success. So put it down on paper. So the section of the book that I'm most proud of is the fact that the book exists. That's awesome. Are there any things when you went to Patrick and John in the early days, any processes that you tried to implement that felt very uncomfortable for them? Oh, yeah. I mean, I... Any processes that didn't feel comfortable? (laughs) I spoke in the book about how I met a person who was an early employee at another sort of higher growth company. And he said to me that he, he was an early like leader hired. He said that he started to think about this fruit analogy, which is like, you think you have the solution for the company you just got hired into. And he's like, and you put the fruit on the table and they're like, <laughs> and he's like, and then you think, oh, I'm, it's, it's not ripe yet. And you put the fruit back in the paper bag on the counter and you think, I'm going to bring that fruit out another day when someone is open to eating it. Anyway, that stuck with me. And I, I talk about it in the book because it's stuck with me for so long. So yeah, I do remember actually one meeting, like every founder, I mean, that I've met, I think the really good ones are really thoughtful and intentional and anything they're putting in their company, it's like being careful about what you put in your body, right? You're like, is this going to be good? Is it going to be good enough for what my vision is? I think that can be a big leap to make to implement something. I mean, I'm thinking right now about our performance management process, right? And I remember we had this meeting and I said, look, we need to get people feedback and we need to build some structures to help start to provide recognition, frankly, because we had a lot of people who I felt were working incredibly hard. And it, they, I think they were like, where do I stand? You know, How am I doing? And I said, and so I think we should put in some sort of performance feedback and assessment process, which, by the way, required us to put in job levels and expectations for jobs and ladders and there's a point in a company that's kind of a scary thing to start to put in because you've generally just hired people and said, here's a job. Like, here's a job to be done. And you haven't talked about their scope and their responsibility and maybe their titles. Stripe doesn't really have a lot of titles, but conceptually, right, you are a senior staff engineer is different than I hired you two years out of school. Point is, I said to them, I think we need to put in some kind of performance feedback process. And we started the conversation and as really brilliant people will do, they were like, let's start designing. <laughs> they have a lot of opinions. And they're right. By the way, most performance management processes are not great. And they heard that from other people. They hadn't put one in before, of course, because they're fairly new to building a company. But they'd heard bad things. And I said, you know what? That's true. They are not perfect. I don't know of one. That is great, actually. But I'll tell you, having one is better than not having one. And I think we can put in a pretty plain vanilla one and not spend all of our precious bandwidth as this tiny leadership team for this company that is completely underbuilt, that needs to scale into designing a world-class performance management process. And that was like a galaxy brain moment. I think for them it was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to compromise and let, in particular me, this person put a plain vanilla MVP minimum viable performance process in this case, rather than doing the best version of what it could be. That's a big leap. And I realized that was a lot of trust. It's so interesting that you're saying this because when I asked John a similar question of how was it having programs put in place by Claire in the early days, 
one of the reflections that he had about the challenges of building high growth startups is there's this inclination to rebuild everything. And it's very tempting to not keep the main thing the main thing because they are under-optimized. And at some point, something is better than nothing. And you can't rebuild every process from scratch, even if it's not the best. And I think for a founder, that's very hard to accept because they're perfectionists and they're geniuses. Yes. And, and they, they have, have vision. The, and they have the ability to redo that. They could. They could rewrite the best performance reviews in the world, probably. probably. I have no doubt that they could do that. But is that the best use of time? And so it's funny because he recognized he that. He said that? And he like, said that. Well, I love the phrase, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think that is your biggest challenge early on building a company is you want things to be pretty perfect. But if you have nothing, that will be the enemy. You mentioned Stripe doesn't really do titles. Stripe still doesn't really do Not titles. Really, no. Can you explain why? Yeah. I mean, so early on, this was something Patrick and I aligned on, I think, in the interview process. We talked about this, which is I think that there is a habit of younger, earlier companies well, it's interesting. I think there's like different camps here and you've probably seen them, Jubin. But one camp is, well, I've got to attract this talent. So I'm going to give people these like pretty VP titles. And in a company of 40 people to have five VPs is like, again, if you're like outside, you're like, well, how, they're the VP of what exactly? Mm -hmm, yeah, no, mm -hmm, 10 people. Mm -hmm. And like, and I get it. And I get that temptation. I think the challenge is if you are successful as a company, a few years later, you're probably layering, meaning you're hiring an SVP. I got you know, right? Because you're kind of backing yourself into a corner in terms of optionality on how you structure and organize. And even though yes, you can change titles and yes, you can layer people. Human beings are animals. No one likes things resources being taken away from them. And you have created. I used to say we're mailing ourselves a problem. Like it's like you're sticking a really bad problem in an envelope and mailing it to your future self. <laughs> and that, I think, Patrick and I both recognized we didn't know how Stripe needed to be structured, how it would grow. We knew we would need more people and more experience at certain points, whether that was internally developed or externally. And if you use all your recognition levers, you know, the other thing was cultural, honestly, which was titles imply hierarchy. And who's important and who's not important. And a lot of the power of Stripe is a belief that the person in the room who knows the most is the person who should be helping solve the problem. And I really believe that. Like, I'm very anti-hierarchical. Like, I think management structures make sense. But I would very much hope that in my style of leadership that I'm inviting everyone to the table and the people who are the experts at the table, and I don't care what level they are, are the ones who are driving how we make a decision. So we aligned on that. I surely should have led with that. I think there's a cultural piece of it, but there's also an optionality and sort of how do you make room for future paths? And if you give out a lot of titles, you don't have that flexibility because it is hard. It is hard to take things away. Yep. So we aligned on that. And I would say we probably have kept it too long. And we talk, I mean, Stripe talks about that today. We did introduce giving visibility fairly recently on the engineering side into what is our level four or what would be a staff engineer equivalent. We now make that internally visible 
because we were getting a lot of feedback, which was like, look, from other engineers, it was like, who do I look up to? Who should I learn from? Who should I ask to be my mentor? And we were so flat, right? You couldn't see any of that. Title or no title, you just couldn't even see someone had achieved that point in their career, a level four or a staff engineer. And we were like, yeah, you're right. We should make that visible so we can help those people be examples for others. So I think there's a downside to what we did. And there's also a point where I think it's confusing to navigate the company sometimes because we're quite big now Mm -hmm. without so many titles and it can muddy certain things. But the spirit of it was really, I think, a cultural message as well as a optionality thing. It makes total sense. When you joined Stripe, you made it pretty clear to both Patrick and John that you had a life outside yes. of work yeah. and that it was important to you that you were able to not always be, especially when you're driving up to San Francisco at like 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. during the interview process <laughs> and you're probably right, starting I to wasn't get a, showing an example. Right, but, I actually, but you were getting a whiff of what could be yeah, and I yeah. think you probably set the table and expectation pretty early mm-hmm. that you want to be home yeah. with the kids. Yeah. However, the question that I have is in the Claire doc, you basically say, hey, ping me anytime, uh-huh. right? Like you basically- you know you're going to bust me. <laughs> you basically say, hey, if you send me an email, yeah. I will not necessarily respond to it, but you can basically count on the fact that if you send me an email within 12 to 18 hours, I will have read it. Yeah. And if you need me to respond, please be deliberate right. in saying that I need to respond. Otherwise, I probably won't, but yeah. just know that I, that I read it without acknowledgement. So I wonder, how did you balance those two things? Because Stripe- does have a culture of hard work. Yes. And that's also why I believe that a lot of Stripe alumni have gone on to do pretty incredible things in the workplace. Yeah. Because there's a lot of really good values around hierarchy, around letting the work do the talking for you, around working hard. Being user-focused. Being user-focused. All of these things, right? Being very deliberate and intentional about the actions that you take. Not being afraid to tackle really brutal problems. Not being afraid to tackle brutal problems, except it goes on and on. I mean, it's not by accident this is one of the most insanely impressive companies ever. I do wonder, did one erode over time? Were you able to keep that promise to yourself Mm -hmm. and to your family? Because my impression is that this gives you a lot and you can't help it. You take a day off and then you go into work because you got things to do. So I just wanted to get in your head a little bit on that balance. Yeah. I mean, what I did- Is this fair by the way? That is fair. No, I think it's a very fair question. I think this is a- topic that in particular a lot of women get asked, which we should all ask ourselves, but I think you, Jubin, seem to be asking multiple guests of different genders on this question about your life and preserving all the things that are important to you, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's not just our work. When I joined Stripe, I actually tried to scare them off by over-exaggerating. I wrote a document. I was like, here's my work hours. This is when I'll be in the office. These are the vacations I plan to take. And it was kind of a test, but it was also, it wasn't like that much over-exaggerated. Like my kids have spring break. We go on a trip when they have spring break and I'm not going to not go on a trip just because I'm working at a startup. They both were authentically supportive. They were like, of course, like when you need to leave the office, like leave the office. Now I also said, I will get back on and work at night, which I've been doing at Google for 10 years. I would have been doing my whole career. I mean, if anyone tells you, yes, I have been successful in my career, Did I work really hard? Yes. Every job I've ever had, I don't just like leave the office and stop working. Like, I just think that's part of the formula. I think this is like no secret sauce. You have to just work hard. Yeah. And ideally, as you get wiser, you work smarter. But 
still a lot. Yeah. But point is, I said, I need to be home. I want to have dinner with my kids most nights. Like, I won't be, you know, I'll go out to dinner with a customer. I'll go on a business trip. And they were like very, and I think this comes to whatever values they were raised with, but they were very, and they are very family oriented actually. But I believe they really got it, even though at the time they were a couple of people in their 20s. So one is there's a sort of in-office time and clock time versus response time that I want to distinguish. The other is when I say to people is I don't think there's like work-life balance. I think there's knowing your priorities and protecting them. And for me, declaring them like there's a point where I get I get you have to sort of have a certain amount of credibility in the workplace and people want to work with you. And you say, well, then I am going to protect this priority. And for me, exercise is a priority. Time with my family is a priority. And work is also a priority. Yeah. And so there are things that have fallen. I feel now that my kids are older. I can reconnect with my friends. Mm -hmm. But did I spend a lot of time with friends the last 20 years? No. Yeah. I'm lucky I have some very great close friends who are very understanding. You know, have I been to a lot of concerts? <laughs> have I even seen a lot of movies, Jubin? No. <laughs> like, sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm like, wow, I really missed out. And now, and now the artists, like the band is broken up. I'm like, oh, I should have seen them in concert. Yeah, they're like, they're not even playing. They're, they're not, not even, even touring playing anymore. anymore. Can I, can I tell you part We of, all prioritize different things. That's right. Part of my impetus for asking the question And tell me if you think this is wrong, but do you think that any part of that conversation was because of your dad's surprise birthday when you were at Mm, Google? mm. Do you ever feel like moments in life just happen that re-clarify? Yes. And would you be willing to, like, are you open? Yeah, I know. I mean, it's hard for me to talk about this, but I, I have talked about it now in the workplace. So I was at Google. And working incredibly hard, I basically came back, Cheryl left, I came back, I got this bigger new job, not quite her job yet, but I I got a bigger new job and I went out on maternity leave and then came back as the 2008 financial. Yeah. In the case now we can look back and was it, did it hit tech as hard as we thought it was at the moment? But I literally came back in like September and Lehman Brothers collapsed and I had this new job and a big team. And I had to make some really hard calls, including we did have a small layoff in my team. Yeah. And I was on the West Coast. My family was on the East Coast. And my mom wanted to throw a surprise birthday party for my dad in New York City. And I talked to my manager at the time. And I was like, look, I'm going to announce this layoff. And then I needed to like go and do team meetings and all hands and answer questions. And I said, but I also need to want to go to New York City and see my dad and be there for this surprise. And he was like, well, I don't know. Like, I don't know if you can do that physically, right? Because I was trying to, if I had not worked this out, it would probably be one of the biggest regrets of my life. I said, here's what I could do, which is do the events in California, events like all hands and hard mm-hmm. meetings and hard announcements, yeah, and then take a red eye to Boston because I had a team in Cambridge. And then I'm going to fly to New York and try to make it in time for this dinner. And to his credit, by the way, he said, if you think you can do that, that seems like a kind of a compromise, but like that sounds like workable. So I took the red eye. Like, I mean, it was a very difficult work week and I made it to this. And this was my dad's actually 75th birthday. It was a big deal. And end of March, two weeks later, I got a call in my office and my father had died of a heart attack. And I remember being on the way 
So my mom calls me and I get in the car to go to the airport to get back home. And I remember calling my best friend. And I just kept saying to her over and over again, what if I hadn't gone to the dinner? Yeah. Right. And I think that was absolutely a clarifying moment for me. Yeah. Because that would have been a really bad choice. Right? Yeah. And I've shared that. I share that in the work setting sometimes, though it's hard, as you can hear, because I don't think we make the right choices. And so that's what I mean by like, what are your priorities? But how do you protect them? Is not just like going running three times a week or whatever it is. Actually, when the chips are down. And here's the other thing is I had a... In those moments. In those moments, I had an opportunity. There's work opportunities that come up. I remember I had an opportunity to like be in a meeting with Eric Schmidt and present something. And then there was a family thing that came up. And after this happened with my dad, I was like, I just have to miss that opportunity to be representing my team's work to Eric Schmidt. Sorry. Yeah. Which at that point in my career felt dangerous. Like I shouldn't have said no to it or, you know, and I think if I can like give any lesson to people at that point in their career where they're in, I was young, ambitious. I was on the rise. Mm hmm. And I was definitely going for it. Mm-hmm. And you will pay a price, right? I think the thing that I say in the book that my parenting choice is, I will not be there for everything. Like I did not do school drop off mm-hmm. until recently in my kids' lives. And now I have just surly teenagers who don't even talk to me. So it's very <laughs> ironic <laughs> anyway. But I will be there when I think it's important meaning the advisor meeting. Like Barack Obama was like going to his kids' advisor meetings when he was president. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that. That is 100% my approach. I'm like, that feels important. Like I want to know how my kid is doing. I want to know how I can help them as a parent or they're in a show, mm-hmm. right? Or it's a big sports match or whatever. Not every sports match, I just don't make it. And it was very reaffirming when my daughter at the time, like age 12, wrote me a note because she heard me give a talk where I said this. And I said, I say this in the end of the book. You might not have gotten to this point. And I said, she wrote me a note and she said, I liked your talk. I thought it was funny. <laughs> and I liked how you told the story about how you try to be there when it matters. And you are. I have literally goosebumps all over. I really, <laughs> really appreciate you sharing that. I think that's a really fair place to end it. And I'll tell you what, this is why I do this show. Because people like you saying things like this needs to be heard. And I think the things that you write in the book need to be written and the things like this and the sacrifice that comes with it. I just really appreciate you sharing it. Well, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity and for reading the book. I have like, uh, my hands are sweating. I'm like shaking. I don't even know what to do. I like completely lost my composure. I always conclude these things the same way. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? Well, I think of, what is it? Angela Duckworth, right? I mean, it strikes me as right, which is what makes you as a person, what makes success is not when it's easy. It's when you get knocked down and you have the grit to go back and try again, do it again. So to me, grit is resilience and it is a certain type of ambition. It's like kind of easy to say I want to have be successful. Mm hmm. It's not easy, and we just talked about it. What is success, right? It's not easy to actually define success and then to apply yourself to that over a very long period of time, facing the obstacles and the life challenges that we all face, and actually 
get to your version of success, mm-hmm. that's grit. Because there will be a lot of people telling you some other version of what you should be. It reminds me of Bobby Knight, the famous coach, who says that a lot of people have the will to win. Most people just don't have the will to practice. Yeah. Yeah. Claire, thank you. Thank you, Juman. This was really great. The world just stopped around me. I don't even know what happened. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for tuning in. We've had some pretty amazing guests in the past, and we'll have some pretty amazing guests in the future. I just really appreciate you all spending the time. 